Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jessica Weibel, author of Dead Letters. Jessica Weibel is the author of the book Dead Letters, Delivering Unopened Mail from a Pennsylvania Ghost Town. Now, you lived and worked as a freelance reporter in Brookville, Pennsylvania for a while. Uh, where is Brookville? Brookville is near Dubois uh, and Clarion, so it's kind of in the western, northwestern part of the state. Now, is that an area where you're from, or did you move there from somewhere else? No, not originally. I was from Mechanicsburg, and then uh, I was a teacher for about 10 years, and then my husband was originally from Dubois. So once we had our second child, uh, he had an opportunity to move up to the area again, and, uh, and I went along with him, and I'm really glad I did. How did you end up working as a reporter? Uh, it was funny, actually. I had a six-month-old at, t- at the time. My youngest was very young, and so while my oldest went to preschool, there was a newspaper office down the street. And uh, I had been in journalism a little bit uh, in high school, was in the school paper, and uh, definitely had an interest in writing. I also really wanted to get to know the community, and what better way to do that and to meet people than to do that through the paper. So I walked into the newspaper office with my my baby kind of strapped to my chest and uh, walked in and asked if they ever take newspaper articles uh, from, from freelancers, and they said yes right away, and um, so I had a great experience there. Uh, what kind of assignments were you given as a freelancer? I had all kinds of uh, human interest stories. I did a lot of the local school district coverage, uh, considering my background in education. Um, I did some business profiles, things like that, event coverage, covering town meetings, borough council meetings, things like that. Now, in your book, you write about the history of the paper, which was the Jeffersonian Democrat. Uh, You say that it began uh, in 1839, or the newspaper in that town began as the Backwoodsman. What, What was the history that you discovered? So uh, it went through a series of changes for sure back then. It it started as the backwoodsman and um, was kind of owned and operated by this man and and then his son. Um, And then later on as uh, the paper changed hands and uh, it had some very interesting characters uh, as editors who, you know, had some strong opinions in the area. So it was uh, the Jeffersonian Democrat as uh, the politics and the political landscape changed in the area, um, it retained the name uh, Jeffersonian Democrat, but certainly um, you know, changed in terms of its readership and its uh, editors. Now, small town newspapers are going through uh, troubles around the country. Uh, what was your experience with that paper? How, how are they doing there? It's, so the paper went to a weekly, um, from a daily to a weekly, and a lot of the small town papers uh, followed suit in that way. Um, there are still papers in the area that put out daily newspapers. What I found is that there is a lot of interest in print media um, 
in in these small towns, people want to see themselves represented. There's um, an older population that's more comfortable with print media than an online media source. Uh, so that I really appreciated and enjoyed about it because it was you know a different kind of um, representation for the community, a different way for the community to see itself. Um, so what I found that was really surprising to me was the people that I was meeting through the paper, um, some of them were from the area, some of them moved like I did, were transplants, but there was uh, just really incredible stories. I mean, from the start, I was meeting really incredible people who were doing extraordinary things that uh, I sort of serendipitously would discover through, you know, I would meet one person, they'd say, oh, you gotta talk to so-and-so, and then I would reach out to them and then find, you know, these uh, incredible stories that were uncovered. Um, you know, people who were uh, really doing strong activism in the area, people who were extremely talented uh, artists or artisans. Uh, one article that I wrote in particular that I was so impressed with was actually one that um, my friend and mentor, Joan Swigert, who I write about in the book, she uh, showed me this, um, it was a gentleman who did plaster, like wall plaster. And uh, she told me, well, you got to do an article about this guy. He's amazing. And I thought, OK, I'm going to do an article about a guy who does wall plaster. What more could there be to that? But when I met this, uh, this guy, I saw the work that he did. He showed me around town to all the different places that he had done work for, ceilings and walls and murals. Um, and he was just, there's no one in the world who can do what he can in terms of the you know geometry of um, the patterns and doing everything by hand and he's such an artist and a craftsman uh, and and totally undiscovered until uh, we met through this experience so there were a lot of stories like that that I was really surprised to see what the area had to offer that you otherwise wouldn't have expected. You mentioned Joan Swigert, and she was somebody that you talk about in the book, is uh, that she was kind of following your writings while you were uh, working at, as a reporter. How did you end up meeting her? I met Joan, the editor of the paper um, asked me to do an article about Joan. She had a photojournalistic exhibit at the History Center, and uh, so I went to cover the event and then to meet her and interview her about her career. And in doing that, I learned that she had a career as a writer initially, a stringer for the Courier Express uh, around the 1960s, 1965, 1966 in the area. And she was one of the first female journalists in the area who was writing about what she would describe as grisly stories. So stories about, you know, uh, real hard hitting news. Uh, she wasn't afraid to, uh, she had this motto that said, be careful, be nice to me, or I'll write something true about you. So she, she really wanted to um, hold people accountable, you know, politicians and local elected officials and things like that. But she was interested in uh, this kind of investigative journalism and, and faithful coverage of uh, events and news that I really identified with. And um, so I met her through this exhibit started talking to her and realized immediately that uh, there was more to her story as well. And so I ended up writing a more extended story about her, a more biographical story about her life and her career. Uh, she's somebody who just had an unstoppable creative 
spirit uh, and just uh, always inspired by things that she was seeing, whether it was people that she met on the street or old, uh, you know, broken down chairs that she would refurbish or, um, you know, she, she just could find the potential in anything and everything. So uh, when we met, it was such an inspiration to meet somebody like that. But we connected right away over our shared experience with journalism, particularly in the area. And uh, she often said how nice it was for her to have another journalism buddy again. Um, so we talk a lot about that, and we got to know each other based on that. But the more I got to know her, the more I saw the parallels in both of our lives. And that was something that, again, was really surprising to see. Because at the time that I met her, she was 87 years old. So there was quite an age gap between us. Uh, but I felt like we connected right away. Now you say in the book that she had the ambition of being a magazine writer. Did she ever achieve that goal? She did not. She had a great career uh, as a stringer for the Democrat or for the Courier. And um, then she went on to do some teaching and then went on to, uh, when she retired, she worked on renovating an old uh, bed and breakfast. And she, she got into all kinds of things. She did a lot of uh, work with Relay for Life and volunteering uh, and was competitive and striving towards high achievement at everything that she did. But uh, she was unable to become a magazine writer, even though the Associated Press had sent somebody from Philadelphia all the way up to her doorstep to offer her this job. And it was her dream job. But as she told me, at that time in particular, you had to live in a city to be able to access the resources and the information to be able to do the, this type of work. And she just, she said, I knew right away that wasn't uh, that wasn't going to happen. You know, she was a wife and a mother, and she had roots in the area uh, by that point. So uh, she wasn't able to just kind of take off. And that was something that I related to in terms of my own career. And I was a teacher, like I said, for about 10 years, and then uh, transitioning into this role of a stay-at-home mom and uh, doing this freelance work with the paper. And the more work that I did there, the more career opportunity I saw myself having. Uh, but still trying to balance that with a role of being a mother of young children and you know supporting my husband's career as well. So that was something that, again, connected us. Now you mentioned that uh, the two of you shared stylistic uh, sensibilities with uh, your writing for uh, uh, journalism. Uh, you say that you both uh, like to start with a narrative lead. Uh, why do you like that? I think for Joan and I, story is the most important thing. She, she often said that some of her uh, colleagues would critique her work or their criticism would be that you got to start with the who, what, when, where, why, and how uh, in, in terms of the lead. But, but she and I both had an instinct for drawing people into the story. And uh, when I did an article, uh, when I still do write uh, for different publications, I focus on what's what inspires uh, the person, the subject that I'm talking to, the person that I'm talking with, what their passions are, and what drives them and draws them into the work that they're doing. And that's what I kind of latch on to. And that, I think, is the uh, framework through which to tell the story is, you know, what does this person really care about? What is the situation? What is the thing that intrigues um, 
uh, me or intrigues the people that I talk with about the situation. And so for Joan and I, it was always about telling a really good story, doing that in a way that was going to engage people. And Joan would say, you know, if I'm going to write something, I want people to read it. So she doesn't want people to read the lead and then say, okay, I've got the whole picture and that's it. But to entice them to learn more and to encourage people to dig deeper into what their, uh, you know, what this story, what this message, what this purpose is. Now you also say that uh, she regularly sent you story ideas. Uh, was this uh, an ongoing thing while you were working as a reporter? Absolutely. She would call me, uh, send me emails, leave me voice messages, and whether she was at the optometrist or whether she was reading something in the paper that a rival paper had done, she was very competitive. So to say, oh, well, this paper has something on this and they took that from you or you've got to um, you know, focus on this because nobody else is talking about it. And she had such a, she still has such a knack for um, for, like I said, finding stories and finding things that nobody else would have thought about or, or would have just glanced by. And I think that that applies to me as well. There are a lot of times where I would have never thought to look into the uh, stories that she presented for me. And there are times, too, where she would send me a message and say, oh, you know, there's uh, this nurse that I met and she's got a parrot. And this, I think it would be a great story to talk about people who have parrots for pets and, you know, all the uh, things that would be interesting about that. And I kind of think, oh, I don't know about that. So, so there were times where I was testing uh, kind of and trying to balance out, well, do I have the time for this? But, but I, I'm, it's true that every time I did pursue a lead, however, um, trivial or silly or kind of off topic it seemed to me initially I always found something really special and so again uh, it's clear that she saw things that other people didn't even me. Now one of the uh, story ideas that she proposed to you was this uh, the the subject of your book which is this collection of, of letters that she found uh, how did she introduce that to you? I was at her house interviewing her for the extended article that I did and uh, in fact, she had sent me an email earlier saying, I have something for you. I have these letters for you. And I thought, oh, okay. You know, I, I didn't really know what she was referencing. I thought, okay, some old letters. Uh, we'll see what this is about. Then when I was over at her house, she brought out this package where she had, it was actually a lot of paperwork, old documents, um, receipts and invoices and what you might consider junk mail, um, but very, very old. And also with it were a sort of a collection of letters too, um, all from different people, all addressed to different people, different areas, parts of the world even, parts of the state, parts of the country. Um, and a lot of them were not opened. In fact, seven of them were still sealed. And, and so, in her kind of circuitous way, she was explaining to me how she found them, uh, the curiosities that she had, but then also saying that, you know, she hasn't had the time. She always meant to tell the story and to investigate these letters. She always thought there's a story here. There's something really great, but never had the time to do it. She had all these different projects going on in her life that uh, diverted her attention in a lot of different ways, but she always kept them and always meant to get around to them. And I think when she 
gave them to me, that was her acknowledgement of, you know, I'm probably not going to get around to this at this point. Um, I'm probably not going to have the time or the energy to investigate this the way that I wanted to when I first found them, the way I was inspired to. Um, and when I looked at them, again, I didn't see what she saw. I just saw some, some old uh, junk mail that uh, I, I didn't quite know what to do with. But her sort of assignment for me and what uh, sparked all of this was she said, you know, I always thought it would be interesting and it would be gratifying to deliver these letters to living descendants, to find, you know, through genealogical research, to find the people that were always meant to get these letters. Um, I should mention that where she found them was a post office. So it's uh, around the turn of the century, it had been a post office and a general store. Um, so she had been driving by on Route 36 going north out of Brookville and saw this old building that was about to be torn down. So uh, her curiosity was kind of sparked by this, well, why are they tearing this old building down? Also at that time, she was looking for architectural salvage. So she pulls up, walks into this place, starts looking around, and the guys who were there um, you know, said that they've been hired to demolish the building, and they were in the process of doing that. And she saw this box with these old letters and documents in it. And she thought, well, what are these doing here? And noticed that some were unopened. So she uh, asked if she could take them. And they said, sure, we're just going to burn them anyway. So you may as well take them with you. So she brought them back home, uh, kind of looked through, noticed that they were dated all around 1902 to 1909, all around that time period. And so they were over 100 years old, I mean, well over 100 years old. Uh, and, and she just thought, well, why were these letters never delivered? So she also thought, well, what happened to this post office? What, why, is it, why was it abandoned for so long? This community where she found the letters, uh, it was called the Village of Howe, what happened to this town? What happened to this village and the people who lived here? And why were all these things left behind and forgotten? So that was kind of the mission that she gave to me, is to pursue all those questions investigate and tell the story of these letters. Now you say when she gave you the letters, she said, and now you're the messenger. Uh, sounds like the beginning, mm -hmm. of a, beginning of a quest. It really was. I, and I, I've said before, I, I would have passed by those letters if I had walked into that general store, if I would have even had the curiosity to stop and walk in and saw a box full of old documents, I would have passed right by them. Um, but when she gave them to me, it was my relationship with her and my connection and respect for her and admiration for her and the way that she inspired me. Uh, that's what really propelled me forward. For her, it was very much fated uh, that I would be the one to take this on because she saw, she would say she saw herself in me in many ways. And so um, she always uh, would say, you know, this was meant to happen. You were the one who was meant to do this, you're the keeper of the flame, is how she put it. Uh, and so I took that really seriously. It was really started out as a mission to do this for her, to tell the story for her. Now, did you start uh, looking into it right away, or did, did it take some time to get started? I started looking a little bit through it when I got home. 
um, and, and try to kind of piece together what I had to assess what I had, organize the personal letters from the junk mail, from the invoices and receipts of the owner of the general store, and sort it out to, to assess what I had. But honestly, you know, finding a letter, and I did open them, which was a really exciting part. Um, but even then, looking through a letter, a letter like that is kind of one side of a conversation. It's kind of like listening in to somebody while they're talking on the phone. You're, you're missing the whole context brought to that conversation. You're missing one side of it. So as I'm looking through, it's a lot of um, talk about, you know, so-and-so was not feeling well, or did you get the $5 I sent, or there's, you know, uh, news uh, from this person, and they say hi, and, and there wasn't any kind of great scandal or gossip or revealing confession or anything like that that would draw somebody in from the outside of that conversation. Uh, so I thought, okay, well, I, I'm not sure quite who these people are. I'm not sure what the, these relationships are like. Uh, and so it took, uh, so I put them aside for a while thinking, well, maybe I just am not qualified to do this. I'm not a historian. I don't know, uh, you know, all of the uh, genealogy research and I don't have experience with that. And so I, I did, I started to doubt myself for a little while and thought, well, maybe I can outsource this project to somebody who, who knows how to do this, is more qualified than I am. And I started pitching it to different organizations, media production, thinking, well, this, would, this is a really great story. There's something here, but I just don't have the resources or ability to do it myself, uh, which is kind of the opposite of what I realized later of what Joan wanted. You know, she, she saw me as somebody who was capable of doing this. So it took some time before I really, and it was kind of, I rarely have bolts of inspiration, but in this case, I, I was falling asleep at night. I couldn't fall, I couldn't sleep, was laying in bed, and uh, it just kind of hit me like a bolt, like I could write a book about these letters. I could do that. And so I got up out of bed and I just started writing and writing and writing the whole story up until the point of getting the letters. Really grounded and framed with my experience, my relationship with Joan and meeting her, my experience of my career and bringing me to this point as a writer, and then piecing all that together. And once I did that, uh, I brought that to my writers group, which in Brookville, I started a writers group called the Writers Block Party. And this was all around the time that I was working with the paper. Uh, again, something that was very much inspired by Joan because she was all about bringing community of creative people together. She had done that herself uh, back before she had moved to Brookville as well. So, so I brought it to them. I remember we were having this sort of writer's retreat. And I said, well, I've got these letters. And I showed them the letters. And I saw them all kind of you know, their eyes widen and their ears perk up and they were so interested. And then I said, well, I can read a little bit of what I have so far and you guys can tell me if there's something here. So I started reading a little bit and they're all, you know, leaning in closer and listening and laughing at the parts that were supposed to be funny and kind of left on a cliffhanger when I, when I intended to do that. And they said, well, you've got to do this. Uh, this is definitely, it looks like you're passionate about this story but also it's something that's really intriguing. 
And so I moved forward from there with the encouragement and validation of that group and how they supported me. And uh, from that point on, that was last summer, um, I started in earnest doing the research, uh, reaching out to people, interviewing people, and writing the book. And then by New Year's Eve, I had a full manuscript to send to the publisher. Now, uh, one of the key figures here was George Gailey. Uh, it was, he was the owner of the, the building that Joan uh, came across that was being torn down. It was a general store. He was also the postmaster uh, at that location. Uh, talk about being a postmaster in a small town at that time. Uh, was it a significant social position? It really was. It was also very political. At that point, it, uh, the, it was moving more towards the Postal Service was more of, um, you know, an appointed, a politically appointed position transition, transitioning into civil service. And uh, that was an important transition because up until that point, you know, postmasters were very much incentivized to, to handle information that was coming through, to make sure that whoever had appointed them was going to maintain their uh, level of control and power within the community. And so moving to a civil service era, um, that made things a little bit more, it was an attempt to make things a little bit more um, centered around, you know, the service towards the community and what uh, what the Postal Service could contribute to everybody. It was also uh, when George Gailey became postmaster, it was 1890, so that was also around the time when the uh, there was a transition into rural free delivery. So the postal uh, history of the post office and the postal service in the country that was really a big turning point too because people in rural areas like Howe, uh, like Brookville, um, they would have their mail then delivered to them directly. And so, um, so the service became on a whole different level and the role of the postmaster, you know, people were still coming into his post office and getting his mail a lot of the times and there was still a lot of mail traveling through but um, the, the growth that happened within the Postal Service was just uh, increasing exponentially at that point. So George Gailey was a very central figure in, and, and the person that I started with in terms of my research because I thought, well, if anybody is going to know about these letters, if, anybody, if I want to have a context for why these letters were here, why they were left behind, um, then this is the person that I need to learn as much as I can about to understand, okay, was George Gailey incompetent? And that's why he wasn't able to deliver the mail that he was supposed to. Was he, um, you know, just kind of this uh, lovable, scatterbrained guy who sometimes the letters got shoved in different places and, you know, that happened and people kind of forgave him for that? Or was he so fastidious that he would refuse to send uh, these letters, dead letters that were undeliverable, refuse to send them to the central office in Washington, D.C., where they were supposed to go, and instead hold them there and think, well, I'll be able to figure this out. I'll be able to get these where they need to go, or people are going to come back and see me, and so I've got to make sure that I have their mail for them. Uh, so that was an important place to start to understand who he was, uh, his background, his family, and uh, as much of his story as I could. 
Yeah, one of the, the letters that was in the collection was from his brother to, to George, and I, I was struck by it. It begins, Dear Bro. You, we tend to think that maybe something like bro is a more contemporary term, but uh, I guess it had a life at the time, too. Yeah, yeah, dear bro. That that did stick out to me as well. And I think probably because, you know, letter writing and handwriting, you're always kind of looking for some kind of shorthand uh, in terms of that type of mail and that type of communication. So uh, the, another common one that I saw was uh, the word A-N-S, which would be kind of an abbreviation for answer. So like answer soon would be A-N-S soon. Um, there were little abbreviations like that that I would see crop up in um, a bunch of different letters. Did that letter from his brother give you any insight into him or his family? It did. So that was the beginning of how I started to become invested emotionally in these letters and how I started to really understand how if you know the context behind the letter and the relationships that uh, are the pretext for that communication, then you can understand so much more and the letter takes on a whole new meaning and tone for the reader. So understanding Andrew Gailey was his brother's name. He was older. Uh, than George. And in fact, what I learned was that George had, there were eight, um, eight boys in his family and three girls. It was a very large family. Um, George and Andrew, their father was, uh, he immigrated from Ireland, or he was born in Philadelphia. Uh, his parents immigrated from Ireland. And then he settled in uh, Howe, or the, that area following the lumber industry in order to um, start his own, eventually start his own lumber mill, his uh, sawmill in Howe. And then he taught his sons all the lumber trade. So that was what he had been able to prosper with and he wanted to pass that along to his sons. Now by that time, uh, as his sons were coming of age, the lumber industry, the timber industry in the area was beginning to wane. And so the work was not as abundant as it had been in the heyday of Matthew Gailey's time. Uh, at which point, the sons all kind of had to, many of them had to move in different, to different places seeking employment. So Andrew was one of those. He ended up in Memphis. And um, he was out there at the time where he was writing his brother, George. George was the postmaster and owner of the general store. George had managed to find a way to stay in the community. And uh, Andrew was writing him and saying, um, I'd like to come home. Can you find any opportunity for me? There's a position at the county clerk office. Can you find out anything more about that? Uh, put in a good word for me so I could come home. Now, when I just read that initially, I thought, oh, okay, well, that's, I guess he had his eye on a job there. But then knowing that Andrew Gailey had moved away from his family, uh, he was married, but his wife died young. He had two sons, but they grew and left the house and moved very far away. So Andrew Gailey ended his life, or I shouldn't say he ended his life, but towards the end of his life, he was in Memphis, um, all alone, in his 80s, still working as a saw filer. And, um, and when he was tragically hit by a bus in Memphis, um, he had no family around. So, so knowing that story and understanding uh, Andrew Gailey's kind of desire to return home, his hope that he might be able to do that someday, and then knowing that he never did, 
the letter that he wrote to his brother takes on this very uh, sort of heartbreaking tone to it. And that was, like I said, one of the first letters that I researched. And when I found that out, I was, I was just sort of devastated for him. Uh, and, and reading that letter over again brought on you know, a different sort of sadness to it. How do you find that kind of information about somebody? Since he had moved out of the area, you, you didn't necessarily know where he was. Uh, how did you find him in Memphis? What I found, I was able to use a couple different resources that are really good for genealogical uh, research. So there's Ancestry.com, and then Newspapers.com is another really good one. So Newspapers.com, with that technology now, you can search through um, any newspaper in any area and search key words from you know a specific date range. So in the case of Andrew Gailey, the um, other thing that really helped with my research, and this was great because I was just sort of getting my feet wet in all of this type of research, um, I got really lucky, which uh, I was able to see that uh, I stumbled upon family research that a woman named Alice Gailey had done. And she actually lived in Brookville too um, up until her death. And she had spent a lot of time researching her family, took a lot of pride in her family heritage. And on these different sites, she was uh, active with Ancestry and uh, Find a Grave was another one that she, she had. So she had um, put together, you know, had photos and documents and family trees that were linking up everybody. So once I was able to find that, so much of the Gailey family history uh, came came to light. And in fact, when I uh, later on found out, Alice had been keeping the family connected through their heritage by sending out newsletters to family members and coordinating family reunions, um, very much centered on the research that she was doing and things that she found out about the family to kind of keep those stories and keep that um, history alive for her family. So I was really lucky to be able to, like I said, uh, stumble upon that. Were you able to, to deliver Andrew's uh, letter to any of the descendants? I was, I was. I, uh, thanks to Alice and her uh, wonderful work, I was able to find a descendant of Andrew Gailey um, and reach out and send him, uh, his name is Jim Gailey, so I sent him, and this was kind of the fun part about, uh, about doing this project, is when I would find a descendant, then it's kind of an interesting conversation because it's either a phone call or an email. In this case, it was an email. And uh, I'm reaching out. I'm a total stranger saying, well, I think I have a letter from one of your ancestors. And does, that, does this name have any connection to you? Do you know anything about this? And, uh, and in this case, yes, he did. And uh, he could recall, thanks to Alice, he knew some of the family history. And then once I got that side and was able to talk to him and his experiences and his recollections of his parents and grandparents, um, then again, the story, in my mind, uh, came full circle and became a complete story because uh, it, the resolution was seeing these descendants today and then hearing their reactions to the letters that they were reading for the first time that were written by their ancestors. Talk a little bit about the town of Howe. Does it still exist? It does. It's an unincorporated uh, village. 
is how it would be characterized now. Really, all that you would see of how if you were to drive through would be a sign that said the village of how. And uh, Joan and I talked about this. She said, told me where the sign was and and uh, noted that there really was nothing else uh, defining characteristics or community centers or anything like that that would show uh, community features of how to show it as a distinct community. In fact, when I was researching locally and talking with a lot of people about uh, this post office that was in Howe, a lot of people who had been born and raised there had no idea what I was talking about. Um, it was only uh, a couple of residents that I ended up getting in touch with that even identified as being from Howe because they knew more of the history, uh, but most people really didn't. It, it was just one of those uh, communities that kind of seemed to disappear. There were family farms and fields and things in the area, but for all intents and purposes, Howe became kind of the place that you, was, was, you would drive through on your way to somewhere else. Now, one of the letters was uh, by somebody named Ed Edna Lockhart, and uh, she writes in her letter that her teacher was cranky. Uh, what did you find out about her? <laughs> I love that letter. Um, it was just such a charming. Just, so Edna was 13 when she wrote that letter. It was to her Aunt Hannah, um, which likely was not her actual aunt. Uh, it was maybe a great aunt or someone that she would refer affectionately to Aunt Hannah. But she was writing uh, on behalf of her grandmother. Edna was writing for her grandmother to, to um, you know, facilitate the correspondence. And then I guess her grandmother was kind of, must have prompted her, well, you better write a letter to Aunt Hannah too. And so Edna was writing about, you know, all the things that a 13-year-old girl at that time would be thinking about, like um, her teacher and how many lickens she was giving to the students. and you know, how many lickens her brother got versus how many she got and who was really bad and who wasn't bad in school. Um, but I'll tell you, out of all the letters, Edna's letter, uh, Edna had the best penmanship. So her cranky teacher must have done something right. Now, uh, you connected with her grandson in Belfont, is that correct? I did. So learning more about Edna, I started uh, unraveling her story and her background which led to Belfont where she moved uh, eventually with her husband and his family. And then um, when I got in touch with her, her grandson, Bernard, that was another interesting phone call and one that was such an amazing connection for me. Uh, I called and left a message and again it was kind of this uh, strange out of the blue thing where I said, well, I think your grandma was Edna Lockhart and if, that's, if that rings a bell for you, I have a letter that was written by her. And uh, he called me back right away and said, well, yes, uh, I know her, I know Edna, she was my grandmother and uh, she raised me. And so, you know, the circumstances in that family um, turned out that Bernard and his brother were raised mostly by his grandmother. And so, that was an amazing connection because I don't think I ever expected to meet somebody who knew the letter writer. Uh, these letters are so old that that was really unlikely. So getting to hear from Bernard about what kind of person his grandmother was, um, the way that she you know, cared for them and the way that they would kind of joke around and tease each other, her, her sense of humor, but also her firm hand in making sure that they 
you know, had clean clothes and that they weren't uh, messing up their play clothes when they went outside and, you know, all the ways that she would kind of care for them. Um, it was just a really, again, brought a whole new level of uh, insight and this kind of heartwarming uh, moment in rereading this letter and reading the letter to him and then hearing him respond. And the one thing that he said after I read it, I think it was the first thing he said was he noticed about that she got a licking from her cranky teacher. And uh, he said, oh, I wish I could tease her about that because she always said that she was really good in school. So um, it was pretty funny. Now, another letter was signed uh, very simply. It just had a, a, the initial L and then the last name Briggs. But you managed to find a significant amount of information about that family going back to the colonial days. So how do you start with something, uh, just an initial and a last name, and, and find all that information? That was a real mystery because there were, uh, interestingly enough, two Briggs families, two distinct Briggs lineage, uh, lin lineages in the area. And so uh, I also only had the initial, as you said. So. There were a lot of L names as I was searching through Briggs family members. There, were, there was a Lester and a um, Lafayette and uh, all these different names that kept coming up. And so, um, so I really, at that point, I was kind of ready to kind of throw my hands up and say, well, I'm, I don't know. I'm in over my head on this one. I don't know how to trace this back because all of my leads were coming up as dead ends. Uh, to be able to find out who it was. Even talking and, and getting in touch with a descendant, um, I found a descendant of the Briggs family that I thought might have been related to the Briggs family that, um, that the letter had. And so even that one, uh, he, he, he was puzzled as well. He wasn't sure, is this a woman? Is it a man even? It's hard to distinguish. So um, at that point, that's when I met, well, uh, I got in touch with a fellow writer and someone who does a lot of family history and genealogy research, uh, Kathy Myers, who I write about in the book. And she really saved the day on that because she um, looked at the letter and thought, oh, well, have you checked these records? Have you gone to the courthouse? Have you looked into here? And, and within a couple hours after I showed it to her, she sent me an email with all of these links and all this information that she uncovered. And so through working with Kathy, and through um, taking what she provided and pursuing the research that I could do, I was able to find a signature on a um, World War I registration card that matched the signature that I had. Uh, and, and digging through all these documents online and all these old papers, it's, it's, I can't tell you how uh, exciting and thrilling that is when you find an exact signature to match what you've been searching and searching for for hours and hours and days and days. So um, it was really Kathy and her just kind of savvy research uh, with this, her experience that allowed me to move forward with that and kind of break through the barrier that I had. Well, it sounds like the research is pretty extensive, you know, v visiting different uh uh, courthouses or uh, and as well as using the online sources how much time did this all take from the time that Joan gave the letters to the time you found the the uh, the information on the last of the letters well I started writing like I said in earnest around June of last year and then New Year's Eve was when I had all uh, the manuscript completed uh, however 
in between that time, like I said, I have two young boys. And so my writing time and research time is so integrated with my life as a mom. Uh, so it's, you know, in between getting snacks and, um, you know, going to the park and things like that. Uh, I'm stealing away 15, 20 minutes, an hour here and there to be able to uh, do the research or, or take some time to write, do things like that. So it, it's hard to break down the amount of hours or anything like that, but it, it was a process that um, the it seemed to gain momentum the more and more I got to know about and to understand the process, the research process, and understand how to you know reach out to people and 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 the more that I got to interview some of the key people who really knew about this area uh, and all of that the the like I said the more momentum that I gained and um, then it got to the point where it was you know you had to really tear me away and my husband will vouch for this you had to tear me away from uh, the research because it just uh, it's really like I said an exhilarating process when you have those breakthroughs and, and get that information and start piecing together these stories. Now, not all of the letters are in English. Uh, some are in Hungarian and Italian and Yiddish. Uh, how long did it take you to, to figure those letters out? Yeah, so I had mentioned that there was a difficulty in this sort of communication because you're hearing one side of it. Um, so with the letters that were not written in English, not only am I hearing just one side of the conversation, but it's in a language that I don't recognize at all. So the first step with those really was to have them translated and to be able to look for whatever kind of clues or um, you know, leads that I could find in order to pursue the research and understand these stories. So the Hungarian letter was the first one that I was able to have translated and that uh, I was very fortunate to find someone at the um, at the university in Pittsburgh who uh, teaches Hungarian, and she was very helpful and gave me a wonderful translation, which was not just necessarily a word-for-word -word verbatim thing, but more just kind of a, a summary and you know putting in some insight and some context for what this person must be writing. So. The Hungarian letter, for example, was written by um, Janos and Marie Horvath, who uh, owned uh, and were operating a boarding house. And uh, so the letter is, you know, uh, talking about this experience. And the translator, Victoria Batista, she was able to talk to me about, well, this was a common trend. A lot of uh, Hungarian families at this time that were emigrating, there was chain migration, and so. Um, they would be uh, going to live with family or going to live uh, at boarding houses and working and sending money home. And so the Hungarians, you know, running these boarding houses would have to work very hard. And, um, you know, in the letter, Mary, t Mary talks about, you know, that she only prays for strength to keep doing this work, even though it is very difficult and exhausting to do. So, um, so getting that translation was really helpful because of the context that I got for it and then the leads that I was able to follow as a result. The Italian letters I also um, was able to have translated by uh, a woman named Vera. And she, uh, she was wonderful. She, she had Italian heritage of her own and so she had a lot of experience reading her own grandmother's letters which were written in Italian. 
and uh, and I kind of sat there and watched her work, and that was the first time I got to see what that process was like of somebody translating something in this way, and you know, trying to read where the lines are smudged or where the creases were especially worn, um, and then trying to piece things together. And it, it was really, I mean, I had a new appreciation for how difficult that type of translation is, um, particularly with a communication that is so old. Then the uh, Yiddish letter was one that really was very difficult to find someone who could translate that. Um, to even identify it as Yiddish was difficult for me, uh, having no experience uh, with that. So with that one, I was fortunate to find someone, uh, Rabbi Yehuda Altin, who um, that's kind of his work that he part of the work that he does is translating old texts and letters and things and he uh, did an amazing job with that again providing the context that I needed in order to understand you know the religious the ethnic the cultural the geographic significance and influences that uh, all are a part of creating that moment where the letter was written now one of the Italian letters tells the story of a drunken priest uh, what did you find there <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it seems that there was a baptism. So the, the letter was written to a Sebastiano Pompilio, by, uh, written by his wife Adelina. And she was living in northern Italy, and he was working, I think, in Howe. Uh, but he moved around quite a bit where the work was. And uh, so I, when I think of that letter, I picture Adelina in her home in northern Italy with her you know, in-laws kind of crowded around and her parents crowded around and cousins and aunts and uncles because the letter is full of and so-and-so says hi and this person says hi and this person says don't remember about or don't forget about this or that. So um, so she's has very little privacy as it seems as she's writing this letter to her husband who's overseas. But they're a young couple, they just had a baby and she's trying to explain to her husband who sent home money for a baptism that uh, things didn't go as planned and the priest that he had wanted to do the baptism uh, was always drunk and dressed in a way that was so inappropriate that she couldn't possibly have gotten him to do the baptism because it would have been such a disgrace. So uh, then uh, she goes on to write about all these, you know, her efforts to try to get money back that was paid to him and all of these things happening. Um, then on a separate slip of paper, she writes, uh, don't forget to send money home for your mother and don't tell her that I told you that. So she managed to get just a little bit of privacy to be able to reach her husband and, and give him that message too. Now you mentioned that uh, Sebastiano was in Howe at some point, but not everybody whose letters you were looking at were actually in Howe. Uh, how did the letters end up there? And did we able to, ever able to find out about that? So these letters all intersected in Howe, but you're right, they, some of them were misdelivered, uh, belonged in different addresses, and that's why they could not have been uh, placed by George Gailey. So um, with some of them, I was able to understand well, how, what exactly went wrong here. And one in particular was a letter that was written in Yiddish. Uh, it was addressed 5722 Howe, Pennsylvania. And then it said America, so um, so that one went to Howe, obviously. But when I found who that person, who that letter was addressed to, 
and I and I was able to find an article um, talking about this gentleman and uh, some kind of event, a wedding reception that was happening at his house. It had his address as 5722 Howe Street on the uh, east side of Pittsburgh. So that letter I was able to see how that was misdelivered and, uh, and why it would have been. Um, one letter came from Oklahoma City and ended up in Howe, and I still cannot understand how that happened. Uh, the person who wrote it was writing to her daughter, and for some reason, um, when she wrote out the address, she wrote it looked like Howe or Hall, or it was very difficult to read, and so somehow got, um, you know, tracked all the way up to northern Pennsylvania but when, when it should have just traveled a short distance to uh, her daughter in Oklahoma City. So, uh, yeah, some of them still remain a mystery. Now, you talk about the, the earlier you mentioned the dead letter office and how there were uh, letter detectives and some of the ones that I guess that uh, the categories of people they would hire to, to search out these dead letters were retired clergy and women. Uh, why these two different mm -hmm. categories? Uh, so the information that I could find talks about this office and the fact that so much mail would be coming in particularly they were concerned about the mail that uh, had money in it or jewelry or uh, valuable artwork uh, things like that that would come through and uh, so the uh, postal service uh, officials thought that hiring women or clergy would cut back on uh, the amount of times that someone would steal those things and just kind of pocket them. Because a lot of the mail that came through was unable to be delivered. Um, there were some dead letter sleuths, like the one I mentioned, Miss Collins, who was just a phenomenon. She was able to you know, piece together bits and pieces of clues, and I sort of tried to channel her energy as I was doing the same thing. You know, What would she do and how would she think about this? Um, to place these letters where they're supposed to go, and she had a great track record with that. But a lot of times, you know, it was completely a mystery where these were supposed to go. The addresses were so uh, off target or not written in legible handwriting. And so uh, it was something like 60% of the mail that came through was ended up being destroyed, or if it was something valuable, would be auctioned off uh, for, you know, um, the government. So, uh, so yeah, they, they thought that women and clergy would be the most trustworthy people to handle this kind of personal communication and, and sometimes very valuable assets. So as you were doing the research on this, was Joan following along on your journey? Were you reporting back to her? I was. As much as I could, I would get in touch with Joan and, and um, I kind of waited until I had something a lot about George Gailey and his family because she had mentioned George Gailey. She knew that it was his general store and she knew a little bit about the family. So uh, when I told her everything that I found out about George Gailey and his family history and all of that, you know, she was really impressed and gratified with that. Um, but the, the funny thing about Joan is, you know, she's always a forward motion, forward momentum. So. Uh, so every time I would come to her and say, oh, you know, guess what I found out? Look at this breakthrough that I made. She would say, you know, I got another story for you, <laughs> and you should really think about doing this one. And uh, so she, she just always had something up her sleeve as a new idea. But she, she was, by the end of um, the whole process, she was really blown away 
um, at how extensive and how much I had developed this, particularly in terms of writing a book. Uh, she said herself she had never imagined that it would become uh, such a big story. She thought, you know, uh, there was definitely something there, and she thought delivering the mail would be a really great project, but she never would have imagined doing something to the scale of it. Now, when you completed the project, you had people who were the descendants of those uh, people who were able to find write letters to Joan. Uh, what was that experience like, and how, how did she respond? I owe that idea to my beta readers, and again, that's another plug to having a writing community, uh, which I think is so important. But I thought, now how do I end this story, um, particularly in terms of you know, coming back to my relationship with Joan and what this has meant to her and what it has meant to me. By, by that point, I was fully invested in these letters and these stories, and I cared so much about them. And, um, and they med made the recommendation of having the descendants write letters to Joan and as kind of this full circle moment. And I really just love that. I love the symmetry of that idea. And so when I reached out to the descendants that I had gotten in touch with uh, through the letters, I told them about Joan. I told them about why she inspired me and uh, her career and experience as a journal, uh, a journalist and photojournalist and just an all around very creative, passionate person. And I said, you know, she's the one who saved these letters. Uh, if it hadn't have been for her, they would have been burned and lost forever. And so uh, the letters that they wrote in response to her, you know, people had different reactions when I told them about, you know, I've got a letter from your ancestor. There were some descendants who had just a tremendous connection to their family history because of grandparents who would sit around and tell them stories and because of old photos that they had in albums that they would look through and, you know, those people were very much real to them even though they had never met them. Uh, so for those people, you know, this, this artifact has great significance. There were others who had no idea um, about their family history at all, had no connection. Their parents never talked about it, maybe in an effort to assimilate or maybe, you know, just the culture of that family, the dynamics there. But they, uh, those people still, those descendants who still had no connection, still, you know, found some value and, and were glad to be able to see something from their past. And I think that shapes, for all of us, shapes how we see ourselves and uh, how we create our own identities and, and keep the process of creating and recreating who we are. Well, so we are out of time. Uh, I love that moment. We're out of time. We've been speaking with Jessica Weibel. She is the author of Dead Letters, Delivering Unopened Mail from a Pennsylvania Ghost Town. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.